I have stretched out Psalm 106 about as far as we're going to stretch it. So we are going to be finishing that chapter today. So you can turn there. The counterpart that we'll be in often this morning too is also Numbers 20. So you can kind of put a a spot there in your Bible as well. Numbers 20 and Psalm 106. This, this whole last month or so, we've been working through this psalm, and, and the title of it is called Prone to Wonder. And I hope in our time together that we've seen clearly two things, and these are two things that are here in our notes this morning, um, two major themes that I hope we've been impacted by. Number one is that God's people are prone to wonder. They're prone to fall. They're prone to fail. They are prone to exchange the truth for a lie. And number two, the hopeful side of this coin, is that we have seen that God, despite his people's actions, remains faithful. That God is good, that he is merciful, and that he treats his people better than they deserve because he remembers his promises. It's not because of them, it's because of him, as we'll see illustrated today again. So Psalm 106, it it contains eight stories that illustrate this, these two major themes together. And so last week we looked at the sixth event when Israel was right on the border of the promised land. I mean, maybe not a stone's throw, but an easy trip over to the promised land. And yet there were big problems that we looked at with Phineas, if you remember that story. They were joined together with pagan nations, with women specifically from those nations, and this ended in devastation for many Israelites with people being killed by a plague and with people being killed because of the judgment of the Lord on them. And in the midst of this rebellion, the midst of this flagrant foul, as we talked about last week, a guy named Phineas stands up out of the midst of a complacent people, it would seem, and renders God's judgment against sin. And we saw how he was a a picture of Christ in that sense and noticed that he was passionate. Obviously, he was passionate about the things that God was passionate about. He stood up for the things that were important to God. And this helps illustrate this idea, Christians, that may be more relevant today than in many other times, but it's this idea that we cannot, if we call God our Father, join in or condone some of the things going on in our culture. We cannot participate. We cannot turn a blind eye. Phineas didn't, and we cannot. We must stand for truth. We must push back the darkness, because if the people of God are not doing that, who will? By his actions, Phineas reconciled the people back to God. But it was only for a few moments. It was only for a time. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, reconciles people back to God for eternity. Praise be unto his name. In drastic fashion, he went to the cross, took the sin of every person who believes, and makes them right with God forever. The Apostle Paul reminded us in Romans 9 that God's compassion doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And today we'll study the final two stories mentioned here in the last few verses. And so I want to read chapter 106, verses 32 through 48. You can follow along with me this morning. 
They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may that be our cry. As we finish looking at these historical events that break our hearts, Lord, may you turn us back to you, just as verse 47 says, Lord, save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations. Lord, rescue us out of our sin, that we may forever sing your praises and say, Amen, praise the Lord. May our hearts reflect these passages today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So the seventh story in our eight is found in just a couple of verses, verses 32 and 33. And this I've titled complaining number two. This is um, not, not the same story, but a similar story to what we saw in the fifth story when they came to a place um, and also needed water and also complained. And it's not a surprise that they're in the desert walking around for a long time, and they got thirsty. Was it a sinful thing that the Israelites needed to drink water? No. As we already talked about, waters, needing water is not a sin. It's not sinful. The problem was how they responded to that need. So if you've got uh, your Bible open to Psalm 106, you can now flip to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20, and we'll start with verse 2 and go through 13. Now, this, so this is the corresponding event, a little more detailed than what we get in Psalm 106. Now, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. And just a side note here, they weren't yet in the promised land, so of course they didn't have those things. They 
Still needed to trust the Lord. Uh, verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron went from the, pe- from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through him he showed him, through them he showed himself holy. So you see the same story, but a lot more detail and we get a better understanding of why it's said the way that it is in Psalm 106. Verse 2 of Numbers 20, what does it say? That the people gathered themselves against Moses and Aaron. So I don't know if you remember the story we talked about a couple of weeks ago about Korah and Dathan and, and those guys. And when they went against the Lord's anointed, what happened to them? The earth opened up and swallowed them. They were, they were killed because of this. And for whatever reason, the people thought it okay to do it again. And it seems like they just have really short memories. And it, uh, it just wasn't that long ago when they saw drastic measures taken. And now they're doing it again. So, and again, the request here is not wrong. Like, we need water. Where are we going to get water around here, Moses? Aaron? But... Like normal, the lesson here that God was teaching was a spiritual lesson, not just a physical lesson. It's Israel's perpetual problem was belief, was trust, was faith. And they they didn't just believe that God would actually take care of them. They doubted. And God was giving them ample examples to think back upon the Red Sea, leaving Egypt, but they missed it. There are times when we make requests of God and they don't seem that extravagant in our eyes, right? You know, Lord, I just need a better paying job so I can pay my bills. We should pay our bills, right? That's not an extravagant request of God. Lord, I just want to be happier in my marriage. Lord, I just want my child to stop rebelling and make better decisions I mean, we're not asking God for millions of dollars in our bank account, right? So these requests don't seem all that extravagant. Lord, we need water. We're thirsty. But like the Israelites, the lessons that God is teaching us and them are more spiritual than they are physical. Now, some of them, the lessons that God teaches us, are physical lessons, The underlying sin of the Israelites, though, it was unbelief, it was doubt, and it doesn't take much introspection to realize that that's usually the same thing for us. In fact, the root of most of our sin goes back to unbelief. 
It goes back to not really believing that God can do what he says he can do. And God uses situations like many of the ones that we're in to teach us, to lead us, and to cause us to rely on him and not on ourselves. For the Israelites, the physical issue at hand was thirst, was water, but the spiritual issue was one of faith and belief. And it's clear from the account in Numbers that the Israelites, they lacked faith. They were running in short supply. They would rather rile one another up, gather together against Moses and Aaron, than actually believe God. They pointed the finger, didn't they? Moses and Aaron, why did you bring us out of here? But when they were pointing the finger at Moses and Aaron, who were they really pointing the finger at? At God, at the end of that text that we read, it says that where the people of Israel quarreled, not with Moses at that point, it's where they quarreled with the Lord. I think sometimes when we get pointing fingers at other people, we don't realize that we're actually trying to blame God for the problem. But we are. They pointed their fingers at these leaders, forgetting it would seem that they helped through God to bring them out of Egypt where their descendants had been slaves for 400 plus years. And because of his mercy, God provided water from the rock again. You'll notice that water came out in abundance. All the people could drink. All of the the livestock had enough to drink. But there's something interesting to note here. And I picked up on this in some of my study this week. Think about the age of the Israelites in this passage. This likely was not the old folks who were around when the, the spies came back from looking at the land and saying it's not good, it's, you know, it's not a good thing. These are probably those people's children. And now they're coming and they are accusing Moses and Aaron of the same thing their fathers accused them of. Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to die in the desert? And they're doing it again. They aren't all that far away from entering the promised land. The younger generation would inherit it, but they now were acting like the older generation who wouldn't even see the land. You know, it's it's really easy for our children to follow in our footsteps, isn't it? Even the bad stuff. I think Moses and Aaron, though, I think they understood the gravity of this situation. And it caused them to fall on their faces before the Lord. That was That's what the text said after they heard from the people, the complaining... They fell on their faces before the Lord. This new generation accused Moses of the same thing the generation before them did. And they saw that the problem could be perpetuated from generation to generation. With this kind of contentious attitude, this new generation of Israelites would be just as unbelieving, just as untrusting in God as their parents were. And they saw that that would be a problem. A huge problem. Would they end up just dying in the wilderness too then? Now somewhere in this, and we're not given a whole lot of detail, but somewhere in this situation, Moses gets angry. Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33, they tell us that the people complaining is what caused things to go poorly for Moses. It says, because they made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. This coincides coincides with Numbers 20, verses 10, 11, and 12. 
It's not totally clear why Moses did what he did, but he spoke to the people when he came back after God told him, take your staff and speak to the rock. He came back with his staff and he chewed them out a little bit. Look at what he says in verse 10. Hear now, you rebels. Is that the kind of spirit that God told him to use? We're not told. I don't think so. But he says, hear now, you rebels. Now, the Lord was good and merciful to the people, I said. He provided water from the rock. But this cause, this situation caused Moses and Aaron to miss out on the promised land. So it's a big deal. What was the problem here? Well, what did God tell Moses to do? He didn't tell him to go lecture the people and tell, he didn't tell Moses to go hit the rock two times, did he? He told him to speak to the rock in front of the whole congregation. Not hit it, not once, not twice, but in his anger and in their anger, Moses and Aaron, they lectured the people with a bitter spirit and they disobeyed the instructions of God. And Moses hitting the rock, I think, reveals the problem. He didn't believe the Lord and he didn't sanctify the Lord in the eyes of the people. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 20, who also covers this story, says. Then sanctify the Lord in the eyes of the people. And you can see this back in verse 10 of of, uh, Numbers 20. When Moses said to the people, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? I'm sorry, Moses, who? Who was going to bring water out of the rock? I think that's that's the problem here. Moses and Aaron weren't going to bring the water out of the rock. It was God. And they forgot that. I think bitterness and some amount of unbelief here even caused a great leader of the Israelites into the sin of pride. He spoke to the people almost like it was a 50-50 thing with him and God. Like, we're going we're gonna to give you water now, okay? Even though you're rebellious, we're going to do this. And he, he treated God as an equal maybe and not sanctifying him in their sight. Almost like... God couldn't do it if Moses wasn't there. Thought a little too highly of himself. So they didn't sanctify him. They didn't set him apart as holy in the eyes of the people. And it had some pretty severe consequences for Moses and Aaron. It wasn't them who brought the water out of the rock. It was God. The vices of bitterness and anger can really cloud our judgment, can't they? It can lead us into all kinds of sin. And I would pray that we wouldn't fall into these sins. And if we have, if anger is a problem for us, if bitterness has taken root in our hearts, repent of that. It will only lead to the destruction of your lives. Repent of it today. So this situation affected every person in Israel. The people and the leaders. Because even... Spiritual, godly people are sometimes prone to wander. And this leads us into the last story, the eighth situation in verses 34 through 43. And I'm just calling this the failure to root out idol worship. These are verses that are really a big challenge for us to read, to understand. They were supposed to completely annihilate other nations, Did they really offer their children as sacrifices? Did they really kill them? 
In a world that didn't believe or obey the one true God, the people of Israel were supposed to be different, right? They were supposed to be the people, the light that pierced the darkness. So their government, their lifestyle, their worship, and their families were all supposed to look very different from everybody else. They were all supposed to look distinct, set apart, if you will, from every other nation. They had clear instructions on how to respond, on how to deal with this. So I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 for a little bit more detail. Deuteronomy, it's the next book over, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. These are the the instructions that God has given to the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you defeat them. And you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn you, turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Verse five. But thus, thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Make sure we read as much as I need to, we need to read. Let's keep going. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those that, who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So thinking back to Psalm 106, the story of Phineas, and why it was such a big deal that they brought wives from other nations into the people. They were told not to specifically. And what was the purpose? What was the reason? Why did God tell them, don't intermarry, don't do this kind of thing? Because they would turn the sons of Israel away from the one true God to serve other gods. It was clear. This limitation, don't intermarry with these other nations, this limitation was actually a protection for them, wasn't it? But they didn't see it that way. They saw God's rules as oppressive and restrictive and they burst out from under them time and time again. Think about this. How often does the protection of God in your life maybe look a little bit like oppression? Restriction? Could it be that your limitation is for your protection? 
God says, it won't go well for you if you hang out with this kind of person too much. But we think we can handle it. And then what happens? We fall into the same thing. Because a little leaven leavens the lump. God says it won't go well for you if you look at that or participate in that or entertain that thought. But we think we know better. And so we do it anyway. And it always ends in disaster for us, just like it did for Israel. We don't like being told what to do. I almost had you like raise your hand if you didn't like, but everybody, everybody would have their hand up. We don't like being told what to do. That's why we go too fast on the interstate or not wear our seatbelts or any other number of things that we don't do right. We just don't like being told what to do. We like our freedom. And when it comes down to it, our disobedience in those things will result in the same thing that it resulted in for the Israelites. We have to deal with the consequences of that sin. Sin always has consequences. Don't be fooled, especially you young people, don't be fooled into thinking that you can get away with something. Because you may be able to hide it from your mom and dad. You may be able to hide it from your teacher or your principal or that police officer. But God knows, and there are consequences, and we deal with our sin. But God gave the solution to his people, didn't he? He said right here, Deuteronomy 7, verse 5, this is how you're supposed to deal with them. Break down their altars. Dash into pieces their pillars. Chop down their ashram. And burn their carved images with fire. Does that seem drastic to you guys? When we want to get rid of something, what do we do? We, we put it in the trash can here, and then they take it to a dump. Right? He didn't just say, go toss them in a big pile outside the city. Break them down. Dash them into pieces. Chop them down and burn them with fire. This is how we are supposed to deal with sin. This is how Israel was supposed to deal with the sin of other nations, with the false idol worship of other nations. Don't think that you can just take these little parts and use these things. Get rid of it all. Don't entertain even the littlest part of it. Leave no remembrance, no little speck of the mode of worship of these other nations, of their false gods. Get rid of them completely. Don't leave a trace of what they did, their lifestyle, their way of thinking. Why? Why are they supposed to just completely destroy everything? Well, the answer is in verses 4 and 6 of Deuteronomy 7. Verse 4, Because false gods will lead you and your children away from following the one true God. That's why you do this. Verse 6, Because you are God's chosen people, set apart by Him, because He loves you, and you're supposed to look and act and be different. You're not supposed to copy the things that they're doing. Now, why do you think God gave them rules and conditions and instructions to follow? Because false gods will lead us away from truth. And this matters because you, as God's people, the Israelites, as His chosen ones, are His chosen and set-apart people. We are supposed to represent Him among the nations. God's people represent Him among the nations. Just as the nation of Israel did then, we do now. 
But as a result of mixing with other nations, look at what happened. Back, look back in Psalm 106. Verse, starting with verse 35. As a result of mixing with other nations, it says that they learned to do as they did. Verse 36. They served their idols which became a snare to them. Verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Verse 38, they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. Guys, I would love to tell you that these are figurative analogies, but they're not. They're literal. A result of intermarrying and learning idol worship was that the Israelites literally sacrificed their own children to false gods. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31, God's speaking to Jeremiah here. He's talking about Israel and he's saying that they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of Son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Now, if you remember back in one of the first stories, actually the first complaining story that we looked at in Psalm 106, the people actually accused Moses and God of bringing them out into the wilderness to die. And they actually said, why did you bring us out here that our children would become prey? How far have they come? At one point, at least in their own minds, it was a horrible thought that their children would die in the wilderness. And now, slipping into idol worship of false gods and being turned away from the one true God, they're not so concerned about their children in that way anymore, are they? They're sacrificing them to idols, to other gods, even doing it willingly. Is it any wonder that God told them to destroy these other nations completely? Leave no thought. Leave no thread left. In these things, in doing these sacrifices, they became unclean. And Psalm 106, verse 39 through 42 tell how they were yoked to other nations. And then because of that, they shared in their judgment. You can read about this, I think, in Deuteronomy, in this story as well, at the very end. It says, if you fail to do these things, you will share in the judgment of these people that you've joined with. So let's pick it up in verse 43 of Psalm 106. I'll give you a second just to turn back there. Psalm 106, verse 43 says, Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. I I think, I personally think that the references to sacrificing their children to idols is one of the lowest, if not the lowest point in Israelite history. In the lowest point in their story in general. And it signifies the kind of corruptness in a nation that just unquestionably incurs God's judgment. It's coming for a nation that does this kind of thing. And we need to take heed of that in our own nation. I think verse 43 is kind of a summary statement here. It sums up all eight stories in a very simple way. And so the equation that I've come up with, or at least um, this leads to, is that sin leads to separation every time. They did not walk with the Lord. They did not obey the Lord 
Sin leads to separation and rebellion leads to being humbled. It leads to humility, but not in the way we would like to receive it, to have it. And I think this is what the author of Psalm 106 wants his readers to reflect upon. That's why he brings up all these eight stories from their past. These are not fun stories for the Israelites to think about. Giving their children to idols. But then comes verse 44. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this is one of the most beautiful verses in this chapter. Starts with this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. There, think, put your shoes, put your, pretend you're an Israelite for a second. Pretend you're an Israelite for a second. Walk in their shoes. I don't know, I was trying to say something like that. Uh, think, and, and just think about your history. And we could do this for America at this point. We could think about some of the terrible things in our own history. But if you're an Israelite and you've just heard these things recounted to you, and then you hear this word, nevertheless. That's got to be some hope. We've just been broken down, right? being reminded of all these horrible things that we have done, and now we've got this glimmer of hope and light. There's no sweeter word that the author could use here. Despite it all, even in light of all of the terrible things, in light of Israel's propensity to wonder, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. Guys, God responds to those who have been saved by grace through faith. Not because you deserve it. Verse 45 tells us why God rescues people and saves his people. It's because he remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Was it according to their worth? We've already read like he didn't choose them because they were the greatest nation. In fact, they were one of the smallest. It wasn't because of their worth. Was it according to their good deeds? No. We can't say that. Of course we can't say that. It was according to His steadfast love, the abundance, the overflow of the steadfast love of the Lord. He did it. God saved His people because He keeps His promises. Even when we are not faithful, He remains faithful because He can't deny Himself. He did it because he remembers his covenant. And then look at verse 47 and 48. This backs us up to kind of, I think, look at it from a wider perspective. It says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So God saves his people out from among the nations And they then respond in four particular ways. And you can see them here in the text. They're going to give thanks. They would recognize and set God apart as holy. They would give, they would glory in His praise, kind of like Phineas did. And that their lips and their lives would constantly proclaim the praise of the Lord. Guys, God's plan for salvation is still the same today. He saves and calls people out from among the nations to be his peculiar people for the glory of his name. That's why he does it, not because they're worthy or because they've earned it, but out of the abundance of his steadfast love. 
the psalmist, I think, to some degree, wants like this reset to take place. Not just for himself, but for the nation. Countrymen, he's saying, remember our past? Look at all the ways that we've rebelled. We have not been notched up in these things. We are being knocked down in these things. These things should be held against us. I like that he's honest about their history. He's not trying to cover it up. He's not trying to change it to make it that it's something that it's not. He's honest about it, but he wants his readers, and I think he wants you and me, to be affected by the past. To be affected by it. Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but I think being reminded of who we were apart from him should affect us. Why else would the author here bring up so much of this hard history. I think it's because he wants these hard things to drive his readers, the people of Israel, to further dependence on God and to holiness and to pray a lifestyle of praise and worship. Guys, I hope the same thing for us. I think God gives us psalms like Psalm 106. It's historical in nature, but this should inspire praise as well. Hiding or disregarding our past doesn't somehow get God to think that we're good. Be honest about your sin. In fact, I would contend that we need to be affected by our sin. God was, right? That's why Jesus went to the cross. It's because it has an effect on God. We should be affected by it, but it shouldn't drive us to despair. It should drive us to the foot of the cross. It should drive us to further dependence on the Lord. It should drive us to praise. Now, maybe your past looks something similar to some of these stories that we've talked about. Complaining, unfaithfulness, disregarding, rebellion against God. Remember that word in verse 44. Nevertheless, he saw their distress and he heard their cries for help. If we're honest, every one of our lives is marked by disobedience and rebellion and sin, isn't it? Maybe to varying degrees, but it identifies each one of them, each one of our lives. The truth is, God still hears us today. He still sees us today. And even better than that, He still remembers His covenant to His people today. He still delivers them. He still rescues them out of these terrible situations to redeem them. And so you can be sure that if your heart is being moved towards the Lord today by His Spirit, that He hears you. He sees you. He's able to save you and to restore you and to gather in those who come in faith. And you can do that today. You can be gathered in by the Lord today. Come in faith. And you will be rescued, not turned away, not set aside, not thought you're too bad to save. You will be embraced and rescued and restored. And the cry then, if you look at the last verse in Psalm 106, this is the cry of the believer from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed is the Lord our God of Israel. Blessed is our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, sin does mark our lives. 
And as we've reviewed some of Israel's history, our own history, I'm sure, is flashing before our eyes to some degree. We remember that time when we didn't trust in you and we went our own way and we paid the price. We dealt with the consequences. And then, Lord, we remember that time when we weren't believing you like we ought to and any number of other sins, Lord. Remind us of verse 44, nevertheless. God, if you have called us out, if you have saved your people, you rescue us. You continue to because of your steadfast love, out of the abundance of your steadfast love. It doesn't depend on us, on human will or exertion or on how great a person we are. Lord, it depends on you, God, who has mercy, steadfast love. And so, Lord, that's still displayed to people today. That's still given to us today. And maybe there's someone here who doesn't know that personally. They've never put their faith in you. They, they haven't tasted the goodness of your steadfast love in a way that has transformed their life. Lord, today is the day, and I pray that they would run to you, cry out to you in faith, and say, Lord, take all of the junk of my history and redeem it. Lord, in doing that, we know, just like the Israelites, we have to destroy every thread of it, every shred. Lord, because your ways are better and higher and they're good. And so, Lord, I pray, God, I know in my heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters and friends listening, Lord, that there are little places that we have secluded and resisted your hand. Help us to open those things to you so that you can do away with the false gods, away with the idols, because, Lord, those will cause us to slip into bigger problems and sin and take us away from the one true God. Lord, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from those things. Surround us with loving brothers and sisters who challenge us and keep us accountable and encourage and uplift and love as you have loved. Lord, we thank you for Christ that He has, by His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, He has delivered us and has defeated death, and we no longer need to fear. Move our hearts with Your Word and Your Spirit today. In Christ's name I pray.